Well, are you ready for Easter now? You know, I get a little bit aggravated at uh, Andre every week because I hear this choir sing and I think, oh, we should have saved that for Easter. And uh, the next week it's even better. And so I cannot wait until Easter Sunday morning. Uh, praise the Lord that we can just come and worship him for his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, one of the things about Easter that... Um, if there's a negative, it's this, that in our Easter season, it seems that we're so familiar with the story that it has lost some of its wonder. It's lost some of its surprise. You know, in the first Easter, uh, the Easter season was, was filled with surprises. It, it, it seemed like every hour there was another shocking event that took place. And, and somehow, somehow the shock is worn off, and, and we should be reminded of that. I, I think it all started when Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room. It was the night before Jesus was crucified. And Jesus did something that blew them away. Do you know what it was? He washed the disciples' feet. And they were amazed. They were taken aback when that happened because that task was always reserved for the lowest of the low, the servant of the servants. And yet Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, of his servants. And, and, and it was a shocking thing. And the shock factor just went up over the next several hours and several days. It was just a short time after that that Jesus with his disciples goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and there he is under such stress, such pressure, because he knew what was about to happen, that the Bible says he sweat blood. Now that's a surprise. It's called hematridosis. It's a very rare medical issue. And uh, Jesus, uh, the, the son of God, the one with all authority, the one who had created the universe, was under such stress that he sweat blood. And then after that, of course, uh, Jesus was arrested. That took everybody by surprise. Uh, Jesus uh, was crucified. We're going to talk about that this morning. That is an amazing, shocking surprise. It was during his crucifixion that something happened that we'll talk about in a few weeks, if the Lord allows. Uh, in the temple, in the Jewish temple, there was a curtain, and it was ripped from the top to the bottom. And that may not seem like a big issue to you, but I'm telling you, it was the most shocking, the most surprising event that had happened in Israel in 400 years. And that's a long time. Uh, America's only 250 years old. You think how many generations back that goes. And this was a shocking event. And then, of course, the biggest surprise of the Easter season is that a dead man comes back to life. Resurrection Day. And we'll focus on that next week. But I want us over the next few weeks just to look at some of these surprising, some of these shocking events that surround uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. I want us to be reminded of how surprising and shocking they were. And I want us to learn a life-impacting lesson uh, from each of these events. So today we're going to start with the surprise death of Jesus. Now, it's not a surprise to you because you've heard the story, and it's a good thing that you've heard the story, uh, you know, every year, uh, many of you, since you've been born, right? Uh, we, we all know that Jesus died on the cross, but you should know that that was not what just would have seemed like the most logical event. If you just look at it from a general perspective, here's Jesus who uh, claims to be the Son of God. He is God himself. 
Jesus claimed to have been the creator of the whole world, to have all authority and all power, and yet Jesus was, was arrested by Roman soldiers, that Jesus was uh, ramrodded through these illegal trials, that Jesus, God himself, would be uh, just beaten by these thugs, that he would be nailed to a cross and left to bleed and die. Who would have imagined such a scenario that the God of the universe would go through something like that? This was a shocking event from any perspective. But if you look at the perspective of the, of the disciples, even though Jesus had told them that he was about to die, they were still surprised. I'll read to you one passage from Matthew 16. We're going to be in Romans 3 in a moment if you want to turn there. But just listen to this uh, uh, encounter in the life of Jesus in Matthew 16. It says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to the disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed and be raised the third day. And so Peter, it says, took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And so even though Jesus told them this was gonna happen, it caught the disciples completely in the dark. The crucifixion of Christ was in every way you can measure it, a surprising event, which makes us ask the question, why did Jesus die then? If, if nobody saw it coming, if it's not just the logical next step, then why did Jesus have to die? Why could God have not come up with a better plan, a bloodless plan, a less painful plan? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, there have been a lot of theories just through the years, and we could go around the room this morning and there would be a lot of theories, right? Let me share with you some of the most common ones I've heard. Uh, first would be the had to theory. Some people would suggest that Jesus died because he had to die. He was caught up somehow in this geopolitical struggle between the Romans and the Jews. He was arrested and God just threw his arms up in the air. What, what am I going to do now? Uh, it's inevitable. Jesus is going to be crucified. This, this whole plan is just sort of run off the rails. And then God came up with this redemption story, just sort of to take life's lemons and make lemonade. And this was just the best way that God could explain and make valuable a terrible situation. We could say that Jesus died because he had to die. But, but we know, if we know the Bible at all, that that just cannot be true. Jesus was not surprised by his arrest or his trial or his crucifixion. Jesus was born to die. In fact, in John 10, 18, it says, no one can take my life from me. Those are the words of Christ. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. And so while some people have this had to theory, we know biblically he didn't have to die. He didn't have to die. Another theory would be the plan B theory. And the plan B theory goes like this, that, that God created the universe and created humanity and he had high hopes for both but over the years it just sort of runs off the rails people begin to sin wars break out violence uh, all kinds of uh, evil and so God says what are we going to do now and comes up with this redemption plan I'll send Jesus and and through his life and death I will somehow rescue my legacy in the human race it's a plan B but we know as well from scripture that that's not what happened. The Bible teaches us that 
It was the plan of the triune God from the very beginning that Jesus would come and he would die for the sins of the people. So we, we know it's not the plan B theory. And so then some people would suggest the love theory. Now this gets a little closer to the truth. Some people just simply say that the reason Jesus died is because he loves us. Well, I mean, that sounds good and that makes for a great vacation Bible school story. But if we really think about it, Jesus didn't die just because he loves us. I love some people, right? Do you love some people? I think about my children or my wife. I love my family, but I've not died for my family. Love does not necessitate death. And so we can't say that Jesus died simply because he loves us. While he does love us, that doesn't really explain the whole picture. And so then somebody has suggested the forgiveness theory. Now, this gets a lot closer to the truth, but it's still not there. Some, some people have suggested that the reason that Jesus came was to forgive us of our sins, and he certainly does, through his death, forgive us of sins. Uh, but but it's, it's sort of the same thing as the love theory. God commands me to forgive. He commands you to forgive. When somebody hurts you, when somebody injures you in some way, you are to forgive them. But in, in no way are we commanded to die for them. I'm expected to forgive people without dying. And so while there certainly is a difference between me and God, the answer that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins does not give us the the full picture of what's happening here. And so why did Jesus die? Well, I want to suggest to you, and then we're going to do some Bible study this morning. I want to suggest to you that the reason Jesus had to die was because of the character of God. That Jesus had to die, that Jesus did die, because of something in God's character, something about who God is, a characteristic of God. And that's the answer to the question, why did Jesus die? And I want you to see this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 is where we're going to begin. Uh, Some have suggested, by the way, that this is the most important paragraph ever written period, Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. And so we're getting into some, uh, some pretty significant words when people assess it that way. Uh, there are uh, six verses here that we're going to look at, 121 words. It's a, it's a short passage. Uh, and in this passage, we're going to see the question, the answer rather to the question, why did Jesus have to die? But more than that, we're going to see our eternities hanging in the balance. This is an important paragraph of Scripture. Now, some have also said, you should know, that this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to read. Now, they say that about a few different passages in the Bible, Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 8, Romans 9. I think they all come from Romans, but but, but, but listen, while this might be more difficult to read than, say, the Sermon on the Mount, God intended his word not just to be understood by Bible scholars, as important as their contribution is, or even by preachers and pastors, God intended his word to be understood by everybody. And so what we're gonna do is just a Bible study this morning. This will be different than than any message I've preached to you. This will be different probably from most messages that you've heard, but we're just gonna do a Bible study. We're gonna go through this passage phrase at a time 
And I really want you to understand what, uh, what the Holy Spirit is communicating through the Apostle Paul in this uh, very significant passage of Scripture. So hang with me. Ordinarily, I don't show you the main Scripture passage I'm preaching from on the screen. That's because I want you to bring your Bibles. Uh, but today's an exception. And so I'm going to show it to you on the screen. I hope you will open your Bibles. But let's look at Romans 3, 21 through 26 together. So you see the first verse up there. It says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Now, this is an introductory comment about the next few verses. Let's look at it a few words at a time. The first thing I want you to notice is the righteousness of God. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, when you see righteousness of God in this passage, in this context, what you should read is right relationship with God. What he's talking about is how we can have a right relationship with God. Your relationship with God, apart from Christ, is broken. There's enmity between you and God. There's a separation between you and God. But here's a paragraph about how we can have a right relationship with him. That's what the righteousness of God refers to in this instance. Now, the next thing I want you to see is the phrase, apart from the law. You see that at the beginning of the verse? Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, apart from the law, this is good news. This means he's going to talk about having a right relationship with God that is not connected to the law. This is apart from the law. Uh, now, the law means the Ten Commandments. The law means the law of God found in the Old Testament. The law means keeping the rules. The law means meeting a standard of behavior. So what he says is, I'm going to show you how to have a right relationship with God, listen to this, that doesn't have anything to do with keeping the rules. I want to show you how to have a right relationship with God. And this is apart from the law. This is something different. And then he goes on to say that it is revealed. How does he say that? It has been revealed. It has been revealed through Jesus. We'll see in a moment. But it's also going to be revealed to us in the next few verses. So this introduces the topic. You can have a right relationship with God apart from keeping the rules. This is not about keeping the rules, and it has been revealed to us right here. Now, does that just sort of whet your appetite a little bit? Don't you want to know what the next few verses say? Well, let's, let's dive in. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Okay, let's look at this. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's where we want to focus. So how does this righteousness with God, what did we say that righteousness of God means in this context? A right standing with God. So how do we have a right standing with God? It's apart from the law. We saw that in the previous verse. It is through, we see in this verse, faith in Christ Jesus. How do we have a right relationship with God? Through faith. Through faith, not the law, but faith. Now, what in the world is faith? Well, faith can be a hard word to define. Uh, but I think the simplest definition would be belief plus trust. Uh, you, you have faith when you believe something is true, and then you trust in that something. It's not just belief. I could believe a lot of things, but not trust in them. It's belief plus trust. 
I guess every pastor in the world has used the illustration, if I had a chair up here, uh, use the illustration of a chair, and then you say, do I believe that this chair would hold me up? And I look at the chair closely, and I'm sort of a sturdy fellow, but I think the chair would hold me up, and so I believe the chair, but, but, but I, I don't have faith in it until I do what? Until I sit in the chair. So then I'm not only believing, I am trusting. That's what faith is. It is to believe plus trust. How do we have, according to this verse, a right standing with God? Through faith, believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice something right at the end of this verse. The last uh, two words, the last four words, there is no distinction what he tells us here is that everybody, everybody comes to God the same way. There's no distinction. It's not that some people are on one track. I mean, the really good people. Have you noticed there's some people, they're just really good at keeping the rules? Maybe because of their upbringing, maybe because of their parents, maybe, I don't know, just their, their, the way they're wired. They're just really good at keeping the rules. Some of us struggle a little more with that. Have you noticed? Well, so what he says is that everybody, whichever group you're in, there's no distinction. We all come to God the same way. I read a book this week, Heaven, How I Got Here by Colin Smith. I don't know if you've seen this book. It's a really short book. You can read it in an hour. It's a book about uh, the crucifixion told from the perspective of the thief on the cross. And so he is watching Jesus through the crucifixion. And so this book is what it might have been like from his perspective. But one of the things that the thief points out, at least in this book, uh, is uh, after he had been saved. And of course, how was the thief on the cross saved? Was it by keeping the rules? No, it was by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he notices after he becomes a child of God, he notices this interaction between Jesus and his mother, Mary. Now, Mary, uh, not a perfect person, she was a sinner like everybody else, but she was a very, very virtuous woman. And, and, and he points out the fact that, that the thief and Mary both come to God on the same terms. See, there is no difference. There is no distinction. The only hope you have of having a right relationship with God is by trust and belief. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's keep going. Verse 23 is a verse that you may be very familiar with. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even though you're familiar with it, let's, let's look closely. He begins by saying, all have sinned. Now, you probably don't need much convincing there. Everybody has sinned. You know that, right? If you don't think you've sinned, uh, you need to come see me afterwards, okay? And I, I, I'll help you with that. But everybody has sinned. Now, sin means you've just missed God's standard. You've done something you shouldn't have done. You failed to do something that you should have done. You have sinned. Now, look at the second part. And fall short of the glory of God. Now, when he says all have sinned, he's talking past tense. You have sinned in the past. But now he's talking present tense. Because you've sinned in the past, now in the present, you fall short of the glory of God. Now, here's why that's important, because a lot of people, their plan is, I know I've sinned in the past, but one day I plan to get my life straightened out. 
One day I plan to walk the narrow path. One day I'm going to start living better. Tomorrow, a year from now, you know, when I retire or when I have kids or when I get married or when I get to school. But I've got a plan that one day I'm going to do better. Now, there are two problems with that. One is you won't do better, okay? Uh, you, you think you will. You won't. I promise you. It's another sermon. But you will not change yourself that way. But the other problem sort of uh, trumps that one anyway. He says in this verse, because you've sinned in the past, you will fall short of God's glory in the present, even if you did live a perfect life. Do you realize that? You've already blown it. You've already messed it up. You can't fix it. You are a sinner. If we were to uh, go back here for a basketball game, me and some of the guys after church this morning, maybe we'll do that. And uh, so we got everybody together and we're trying to choose up teams. And so I say, well... To be on my team, I mean, I'm the pastor. You gotta be good to be on my team, and I'm not very good, so I need some good guys. So, what you've gotta do is you gotta walk up to the free throw line, and you gotta hit the first five three throws in a row. The first five, you gotta hit every one of them. And so, you walk up to the line, and you miss the first one. Okay, you miss it. Knocks off the backboard, goes to the side, you missed it. But you hit the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one. Now, are you on my team? No, because I said you had to hit the first five in a row. So you hit one and you missed one and hit four. Well, what if you keep shooting? What if you hit the next five in a row? What if you hit the next 500 in a row? Are you on my team? No, because the rule was you had to hit the first five. You've already messed up. You could stand in there for the next three weeks shooting free throws and hitting every one of them. You have fallen short of the standard. And what this verse tells us is that because I have sinned in the past, I will always fall short of the standard of God. Now, the next verse, verse 24, we're going to begin to get a little closer to the answer. Why did Jesus have to die? He says, they are justified freely, they here refers to us who have sinned, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, justify, let's start with that word. What does it mean to be justified? That means to be declared right with God. That God says, you, you are right with God. So you're not right with God. When you're justified, God declares it. He establishes it. You're right with God. Now, the next word, freely. This is so good. You're declared right with God. What do you have to pay for that? What do you have to do to be declared right with God? It's free. It's free. Now, free, free is never free. You know that? It's free to you is what he's saying. It's not free to God. If somebody ever gives you something and they say it's free, it's not free. It may be free to you, but it wasn't free to somebody. Somebody has to pay for everything. And so in this case, it's free. He will declare you right with God, and it's free for you. But it cost God something. You know, forgiveness always costs somebody something. If you run into my car in the parking lot when church is over today, I mean, you back into my car and you crush in my front left fender, and uh, so, you, you know, you call me out there and we look at it and I say, listen, I, uh, you know, accidents happen. Don't worry about it. I've got it covered. Just go home. Uh, don't give it another thought. You're forgiven. Okay. Now you're forgiven. So you don't have to pay the thousand dollars for the fender, but is the fender fixed. No, somebody still has to pay the thousand dollars for the vendor, right? And so if I forgive you, it's free for you, but it's not free for me. So God has declared us 
righteous. He has declared us right with God. He has justified us. And it's free for us, but it cost him greatly. And we'll see that through, through the next part of the verse. He says, by his grace through the redemption. Now here he's talking about the crucifixion. So who paid when God declared you right with him? Who paid for your sins? Jesus on the cross. He redeemed you from, from the debt that you owe. The redemption means to pay, pay something, pay the price that's on someone's head, pay the debt that they, that they owe. I'm in the process of trying to sell my house in Ohio, and it's, uh, it's got me thinking about buying and selling houses. And I remember when I, when I bought that house, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, it was a foreclosure. Uh, the previous owner of my house, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, either would not or could not make his or her house payments. And so the bank took the house away from that person and the bank had the house. Now the bank doesn't want a house, right? And so they put it on the market and they said, somebody has got to come and redeem the, the, the debt that the previous owners didn't pay. I mean, they left some debt on the house. Somebody has to come and redeem that. And so I went to the bank and I redeemed the house. I, I, I paid what had not been paid that was owed. I redeemed the house. So what, what it says here is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he redeemed us. We owe a debt. By the way, what is the debt? That's a few chapters later, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin, do you know this verse? The wages of sin is death. What, what we owe because of our sins is death. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid what we owed. He redeemed us. Now look at verse 25. Now here we get into some higher weeds. So you got to put on your thinking caps. But here we're going to begin to see the answer. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. That's a mouthful. Let's take it a phrase at a time. You notice near the beginning of the verse, it talks about the atoning sacrifice in his blood. Your Bible might say the propitiation in his blood. That probably doesn't clear anything up for you. What does it mean, the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation? Well, to atone for something means to pay for a grievance. It means, you've heard people say, I'm going to atone for my mistakes. Uh, that means they're going to they're pay up for their mistakes. They're going to make up for it. They're going to pay restitution. They're going to make it good. And so he, he says here that God presented him, that means God gave us Jesus on the cross, to atone, to propitiate something. What is he talking about? What, what, what needed to be atoned for here? Well, in the simplest terms, what needed to be atoned for was the wrath of God. See, God hates sin. God is holy and God is pure. He hates sin. And God's wrath, God's judgment because of your sins and my sins. And Jesus said, I will atone for that. God, you're angry. You're wrathful over the sins of the people. But I will be the atonement. I will cover the sins of the people. And so, now listen, why did Jesus have to do this? Because we're getting down to the answer. Why did Jesus have to atone for this wrath of God about our sins? And, and we see the answer here. 
He says, to demonstrate his righteousness. Do you see that in the middle of the verse? All of this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, demonstrate his righteousness. Read the word justice in there. When God demanded that sins would be paid for, he is showing us that he is a just God. It is a part of who God is that he is just. Do you know what it means to be just? If you're just, that means you can't just overlook sin. If, if we had a judge, I've not met the judges here in Nacogdoches County yet, but maybe some of them are here this morning. So let's say we've got a judge and he's presiding over a trial of a murderer. And the evidence is against the, the accused. In fact, the accused confesses to the crime. And so he, he, we get right to the end of the, of the um, court hearing, and the judge looks at the accused and says, listen, we know you did it. You admitted to doing it. Everybody knows you did it. But listen, you're a nice guy. <laughs> and you know, I, I know your dad. We go way back. Just try not to murder anybody anymore. <laughs> you're free to go. Now, what would we as the residents, as the citizens of Nacogdoches County think of that judge? He's a bad judge, right? Because as a judge, he has a responsibility to uphold a certain level of justice. Somebody has been murdered. Here is the murderer. He must, she must be punished, right? That's, that's justice. Now, God, listen, this is so important. God, he is a judge and he is a good one. God is a just judge. God will allow no sin to go unpunished. You know how many sins, big or small, God's just going to shrug his shoulders and say, no big deal? None. Because he is a perfect judge. Because he is absolutely just. And that's why it says in this verse that God presented Jesus as this atoning sacrifice for what reason? To demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate his justice. To show us this is who God is. He will not allow any sin to go unpunished. Now I want you to see one more phrase at the end of this verse and then we're going to move to the next one. Notice it says... Uh, in his restraint, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over sins. Your Bible, Bible might say forbearance. That's a good word. Uh, think mercy. So God is just. He demands that every sin be paid for. Every sin. If, if you speed on the way home through your neighborhood from church today, that's a sin. Somebody's got to pay for that sin. God's not going to shrug off any sin. He is just, but in his mercy, he has shown restraint. That means he didn't just strike you down the first sin you committed. He, he's given you some time. Now, let's look at the next verse. And we're going to try to move a little quicker here. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous, which means just, and declare righteous, that means to justify, the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, quickly, this is just a repeat of the previous verse, but it's important to see uh, see this again, because it's, I, I, I know, hard to understand. But so notice, notice right in the middle of this passage where it says, so that he would be righteous. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Because God, because of the character of God, that he is righteous, that he is just, 
cannot allow sin to go unpunished. See, there, was, there were only two options. Either God punished Jesus for sins or God punished you for sins. Because of the character of God, those were the only two options. Now notice it says uh, to be righteous, but then it says and declare righteous. Now in some Bibles it'll say so that he might be just and the justifier. So this is the most amazing thing about God. God is just. He demands that every sin be paid for. But God is the justifier. He pays for the sin. Isn't that amazing? So why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Because God is just. And God is the justifier. Let me put it this way. In his mercy, he overlooked sin for a while. We saw that. In his mercy, you see that on your outline. In his mercy, he overlooked sin for a while. In his justice, eventually someone had to pay. But in his grace, he chose to pay himself. Isn't that good news? In his mercy, he overlooked sin for a while. In his justice, eventually somebody had to pay. In his grace, he chose to pay himself through Jesus. I heard somebody say it this way. In, in his mercy, we see payment delayed. In his grace, we see, I mean, I'm sorry, in his justice, we see payment demanded. And in his grace, we see payment delivered. So why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because the character of God, the justice of God demanded that somebody pay. And he didn't want us to pay. So he paid. Now, I'm out of time, but I, uh, which is a common refrain when I preach, I understand. So that's all introduction. We're to the message now. <laughs> but very quickly, I want us to, I wanted you to see three lessons from the cross that we learned from that passage. All right? You're going to have to listen quickly. Number one, we learned that sin is serious business. Uh, why does sin deserve death? Have you ever thought about that? Why does my sin deserve death? I've not even been to jail yet, Right? I mean, yet, I mean, hopefully I don't ever go, but uh, so, so, so somebody tells me my sin deserves death. I mean, I've not sinned that badly. Why does our sin deserve death? Well, we think it doesn't because we compare our sin to other people's sins, right? I mean, I think about my sin, it, it doesn't seem so bad because I know some of your sins, right? I mean, we don't think our sins are so bad because we compare them with somebody else's and we think, well, I'm not so bad. But God compares our sins to his holiness. And God says, if you could see what I could see, you would know sin is bad. Sin deserves death. I, I, had a, I heard a pastor, not a pastor friend, but I heard a pastor speak one time. And uh, he told the story about his two-year-old. Uh, and let me start at the beginning of the story. The pastor just bought a brand new car. And he hadn't had a brand new car in a bunch of years. He was all excited. Drove it home Saturday morning. Drove it in the garage. Called his wife. He had a little two-year-old son, three-year-old son. So he showed them. They could obviously see the pride he had in his brand new automobile. And, and then so he goes on about his day. And mom goes on about her day. And the two-year-old just sort of bounces back and forth between the parents and the home. And and, and neither parent noticed that the two-year-old had disappeared for a little while, as two-year-olds can do. 
until the two-year-old taps the dad on the, on the leg and says, Dad, you got to see my new artwork. And so the two-year-old was used to doing artwork and, and his dad being very proud of it. And so the two-year-old thought, I will combine my artwork with dad's vehicle. And so he takes his dad out in the garage where he had taken a, a, a coat hanger that they had straightened out for some reason. And he had, I'm told this is a true story, he had scratched his artwork on the hood of the car. And he was so proud to show his dad. The, the pastor said, when I saw that, my heart just sank. Can you imagine? He said, I wanted just to grab my son and explain to him, first of all, this is going to cost a thousand dollars to fix. And secondly, I mean, you don't have no idea how busy my schedule is. I'm going to have to take a half day off work. I'm going to have to take it back to the, to the, uh, to the dealership. I'm going to have to rent a car. Uh, you know, it's going to be at the dealership for a week or two. And then I'm going to go back and cause they're going to have to strip it down and repaint it. When I get back, I'm not going to be happy with it. And so I'm going to make them do it again. So that means I got to go back and then I got to come back and then I got to turn the car in. And then for the rest of the time I own this car, I'm going to know that that hood is not factory painted. And even when I, when I sell the car, it's probably going to hurt the resale value of the car. He said, I wanted just to grab my two-year-old and explain to him how terrible what he has done is. But he said, when I picked up my son, I, I just knew immediately he wouldn't understand any of that. He didn't know what $1,000 is. He didn't know what a busy schedule is. He didn't know what depreciation of a car. He didn't know. He said, I just held my son and I said, son, just don't do artwork on daddy's car anymore. <laughs> now listen, you may not understand why your sin deserves death. You may not even believe it. But we, we need to trust God. He says, from my perspective, your sin deserves death. I think about Isaiah. He was the, the most probably the purest guy who lived during his day, prophet of God. I mean, he, was, he wasn't perfect, but he, he, was, he was God's prophet for the nation of Israel. And he was given just a glimpse of the glory of God, the holiness of God. And you know what he said when he saw, this is the best guy in the world at the time. You know what he did when he saw just a glimpse of God's glory? He said these words, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among people of unclean lips. When, when he was given just a glimpse of God, he, he recognized how ugly his sin was. I remember when I was young, I it's one of my earliest memories, I asked somebody, imported to me, if I needed to be saved. I'd heard something about that, and I asked them if I needed to be saved, and they tried to explain the gospel to me, and they said, no, no, you don't need to be saved, because the only people that need to be saved are people who've done really, really bad things. Now, I've learned since then that's not how to present the gospel to a little kid. But you know what? They're right. You don't need to be saved unless you've done something really, really bad. The truth is, you have done something really, really bad. The wages of every sin is death. We see from this the seriousness of sin. Secondly, we see that every worldly plan for salvation is doomed. I've got a whole list of them. I don't have time to go through them, but... People say that there are a lot of paths to the top of the mountain, and everybody's sort of got their plan to make it right with God. I thought about the plan of apology. Some people just want to get to God, and they're just going to beg for mercy. Some people have the plan of comparison. They, they're going to get to God, and they're just going to point out that they're a whole lot better than a bunch of other people. Some people, are, their plan is extra credit. 
And they're going to say, God, I know I'm a sinner, but look at all this good stuff I've done. Some people, their plan is a plan of ignorance. God, I didn't know that that was your standard. Some people, their plan is a plan of technicality. Don't you remember I joined a church a long time ago? But the problem with all those plans is that at the end of your pleading with the Lord, you're still guilty of sin. And God is still just. Which brings us to the third thing. God's grace is amazing. The amazing thing about God's grace is that through the death of Jesus, we have a substitute for our death. Your sin deserves death. The righteousness of God says nobody's going to get off the hook. But the grace of God says Jesus is willing to pay the debt for your sin. Now, let me ask you just to sit very still for a minute because this is the most important thing I'm going to say. I, I, it's not a scriptural account, but I like to imagine standing before God in the judgment. And in this, and, and this isn't a biblical picture, please know. But in my imagination, I'm standing there and over to my left is Satan, the accuser. And he opens his book and he begins to read the charges, the sins that I'm guilty of. And I am ashamed as I look upon the righteous God. And Satan just reads and reads and reads, turns a page and reads. And just before I'm overcome with my guilt, though, out of the door on the right-hand side comes Jesus. And he walks right up to me, and he holds up his arm to Satan, says, hold, hold on a moment. And he puts his arm around me, and he looks to the Father. And he says, Father, do you remember when I hung on the cross, and I was this close from the end? And you and I looked down through the corridors of time. And we saw everything that Noel has done that's in that book. And I told you, Father, I will pay for it all right now. And you accepted my payment on his behalf. You remember that? Father, this one, he's one of us. He's my brother. He's with me. Now, that is the only way anybody will ever have a right relationship with God. And so how do you know? How do you know? Well, it can be more difficult than it ought to be. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about the wheat and the weeds. He says the wheat represents the Christians and the weeds represent the people that aren't. And in that parable, he doesn't say that there are a bunch of uh, uh, Christians that, are, that look like lost people. He says this, there are a bunch of lost people that look like Christians. That ought to scare the daylights out of us. So it all boils down to this. We could talk about a lot of religious words, but let me just cut to the chase. It all boils down to this one word. Surrender. 
It's not church membership. It's not, I prayed a prayer one day. As important as both of those things are, very important. But the question is, April 9th, 2017, have you surrendered your life? Has there been a time when you recognized that Jesus died for you and your only hope was to trust what he has done for your salvation? That's your only hope. And so you said, God, I surrender. I give up trying to figure this out on my own. I trust Jesus. And I will let my life be surrendered from this point forward. I've surrendered to you. I live a surrendered life. You are my master. I surrender to you. So we, everybody looks good. You're at the First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches. But there are people here. There are people likely in your pew that have never really surrendered. And today, I have prayed that today, our deacons yesterday will pray that today people would respond to this wonderful grace of God where he says, I will pay for you if you will surrender to me. Now I want to ask everybody to stand where they are quietly, as quietly as you can. And I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. If somebody around you needs to get out for whatever reason, I want you to make it easy for them to come. I have prayed, I'm expecting people to move. Some people will come and pray for lost friends and family that they know about, they've been reminded of this morning. And that you just come and kneel at this altar for a moment or sit on this front pew and just pray for people you know who are lost. But listen, I'm praying that some lost people would have the courage just to come and surrender. And whether you're nine or 19 or 90, See, I think God's given you today to do that. Father, I pray that people will not be more fearful of man than they are respectful of God. And I pray that people will have the courage that this could be the beginning of a new life for people in this room right now. Father, help us to be bold and to be courageous and just to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing softly. You come as people, people leave. There will be several people down here at the front who can speak to you.